great day the Lord has given us. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Amen. We'll begin reading at verse number one. Amen. The Bible says this. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I want to jump back to verse number three. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And I want to speak to you just for the next little bit on that title, Whom Thou Lovest. Whom Thou Lovest. Would you help me pray this morning? Would you lay your Bibles down? Lift up your voice in this place right now. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. God, we are so thankful, God, to be in this place at this time. God, we just invite you in right now. I pray that your word would go forth. I pray that your anointing would be released in this place, God. God, I pray that your word would go forth. Let it find good soil. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. Lord, and we give you all the glory and all the praise. And we thank you, God, for what you're about to do in this place. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. I have, um, I have learned over the last probably nine, ten years, maybe a little bit longer than that, because Mallory and I have been together for uh, a little bit longer. Um, I have learned that communication is much more complex than you would think. And, and part, of, part of me learning that was just getting older and part of that was getting married because in the earliest forms of communication, you think that simply like verbal communication is enough, but communication goes well beyond that. I mean, it, when you talk about communication, it involves at least two people, sometimes even more than that. And there's all these different kind of factors that play into whether or not what you're communicating gets heard or doesn't get heard. You know, like I was married for about an hour and a half before I found out that it's not really what I say, but it's how I say it. And that was a completely new revelation to me. I was like, what are you talking about? That's not, that's, that's what I said. But apparently how you say it carries all the weight. And then I learned that sometimes simply verbally speaking, something will fall very short of the actual message. And so there's all these, there's all these ways of communicating Everything from body language to tone to acts of service to the written word. And there are all these ways to make sure that the message you're trying to communicate really kind of takes root 
into who you are speaking it to. Everybody follow me? All right. We were just talking just this past Friday night at our hyphen about speaking in, in marriage code. How many know there's a code? Okay. There's a code. There are words and there are phrases that sound like A, but they are B. Right? Okay. (laughs) And there are some words and phrases that I need to deal with here this morning before we move any further. One of those phrases is, I'm fine. Or, that's fine. This phrase is one of the most deadliest terms used by women today. Why? Because when she says, I'm fine, it does not mean that she is fine at all. Babe, do you care if the guys come over and hang out today? That's fine. At this point, you need to cancel everything and take her out for a nice dinner. (laughs) My friends, they call me up. They say, hey, man, you want to go golfing? I said, hang on just a second. Babe, the guys want to know if I want to go golfing. She says, that's fine. I said, guys, I can't go today. I don't know why you're laughing. (laughs) Another phrase is, do what you want. (laughs) Another dangerous phrase that I have to deal with this morning. She will... (laughs) When you hear that phrase... She will literally never mean for you to do what you want. Trying to help somebody here this morning. If you are suggesting something that you think might be iffy, uh, (laughs) and you hear her say these words, do what you want, she's extremely mad about what you are wanting to do. Don't do it. Cancel everything. Fact. How about the phrase, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Ah, another one of the terrifying, deadly terms. If you ask your wife to do something, she says, go ahead, don't go ahead. Okay? It literally means that you should rethink that and then don't do it at all. Guys, I'm here to tell you, just, just everyone followed me this morning. These are some phrases that are going to save a marriage, okay? I'm trying to save somebody's marriage here this morning. No, that's not my point at all. I've also learned that sometimes in the, in the heat of the moment, it is possible to just blurt out something, right? I'm not going to give any specifics here this morning. Uh, Anyone ever done that before? Just in the heat of the moment, you just blurted out something. You didn't plan on saying it. You didn't think about saying it. It just came out. Okay? Let me just say this. This has happened to me one or 12 times. Okay? I didn't think about saying it. I I just said it. And it's not something that I'm proud of. But in the heat of the moment, and maybe you've done it too. You've probably done it too. You're in the heat of the moment and you, you don't mean to, but something 
wells up inside of you and you blurt it out. And the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? So when you're in the heat of the moment, typically what you really believe and what you're really thinking comes out. What you really want to say slips out and you can't get it back even though you try hard and the deal is it can be painful it can be embarrassing but it can also be revealing John chapter 11 we find a moving story about three siblings Martha Mary and Lazarus and most scholars believe that Martha was the oldest and Mary was the middle and Lazarus was the little brother Interestingly, Lazarus was never recorded as saying one word in Scripture. Apparently, his big sister said it all. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> in this passage, Mary and Martha, they are, in the, they are in the heat of the moment. And their little brother's life is on the line. The Bible puts it this way. It says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary was anointed, Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sister sent him saying, Lord, behold, he he whom thou lovest is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so besides his disciples, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were perhaps Jesus's best friends. They were his closest friends, and he loved them deeply. And to to read that in scripture and to thank here this morning as I'm speaking these words to you that the fact that Jesus has friends sometimes surprises a few people because some people think that all Jesus did would really just kind of, he, he went around and he healed people and he, that's all he had time for was to heal and to preach and he walked on water occasionally. And we have to remind ourselves that he was fully God and he was fully man. Okay, he was just like you and I. He was probably a normal looking and normal acting man. I mean, except he healed the sick and raised the dead and and never sinned. You know, he was God. Those are minor details. Um, But other than that, he was just like you and I. And in this story, Lazarus is hours from death. He is on the doorstep of death. And Mary and Martha, true to form, are speaking on Lazarus' behalf. And they need to get the attention of Jesus. And they have one shot at convincing Jesus to come. And they have to communicate something perfectly in order to get his time, to get him to come and pay a visit to their little brother who is getting ready to die. And they need to come up with their best argument, their most airtight appeal. And so they write Jesus a note and it has to be a good one. Their brother's life literally depends upon it. It is in the heat of the moment and they aren't thinking at this point about being polite 
They aren't thinking about being courteous or, or wordy. What they really believe is about to be revealed. How are they going to appeal to Jesus? What will their plea be? Now, if, um, if you and I were the siblings of Lazarus, more than likely, we would have started out this note by listing out all the good things that Lazarus has done. We would start out by talking about how much Lazarus loved and he admired you, Jesus. And he is a model citizen who he doesn't deserve this sickness. He doesn't deserve to die. He's a, he's our brother and he's a good man. He's done, he's done lots of charitable acts. He deserves your help. We'd probably started out like that, trying to get the attention of Jesus, but not Mary. And not Martha. They knew and understood what it was that moved Jesus. And this is what they write. Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. He whom thou lovest is sick. They didn't list out all of the things that he had done. They didn't list out all the good things, how he was a good person, how he didn't deserve this, how, no, 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 no. Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. That was the realization that welled up from deep within these two sisters' hearts that it was the fact that Jesus loved Lazarus. It wasn't their love for Jesus or Lazarus's love or his good deeds that moved Jesus. It was pointless to recite this laundry list of their brother's achievements. That wasn't what moved the heart of Jesus. It was his own love that motivated him. It was his own desire desire to bless and to heal and to restore let me encourage you today don't let the devil lie to you for one second and say that nobody cares and that God doesn't love you you need to only look to the cross to fully understand and grasp the concept that he loves you and it's a love unlike any other love he knows your faults and still loves you he knows your past and still loves you you are the one whom thou lovest it's his desire to love you it's his desire to bless you it's his desire to restore the brokenness it is his desire. Zephaniah 3.17 says the Lord your God is in your midst the mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Psalms 147 says, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Can I tell you this morning, church, that his love for you is steadfast. His love for you is true. It is constant. It is steady and firm. It is unchanging. It is unwavering. It is dependable. It is reliable. It is relentless. It is unhesitant. He rejoices over you with gladness. Would you clap your hands unto him this morning? Why don't we just thank him right now for his amazing love? Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you love us. Lord, that your love for us is faithful. 
Your love for us is steadfast. The story goes on to say that Jesus responded to Mary and Martha's request and he went to their home. But by the time he arrived, he was a little late. You know the story, Lazarus has died. But that didn't bother Jesus <laughs> because he knew what was going to happen. He simply raised Lazarus from the dead. He simply walks in, calls him to come out of the grave, raises him from, you know what pays to have friends like that? Whew. He simply raises, raises him from the dead. He knew it didn't matter. John, one of Jesus' disciples, recorded this story. John, John understood the importance of the love of Christ. Five times in his book, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even use his own name. He just kind of throws it out there that he was, Brother Bishop, that he was Jesus' favorite. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Was he Jesus' favorite? We don't know. You know what, though? It doesn't really matter because he believed that he was. And there is something that is strangely amazing about that perspective. Here's an amazing thought. We are all God's favorites. We are all God's favorites. Some might look at the statements that John had and, and think that they're arrogant, but you know what? John didn't care, and neither did God apparently because it's in his book. And John defined his identity through the love of Jesus Christ, and I find that very fascinating. Your identity should be rooted in the fact that God loves you with an everlasting love. And this, when this world looks at you and tries to identify you and tries to figure out who you are without question they should be able to say you are one that he loves you are one that he delights in you are one that he rejoices over with gladness our identity should be rooted in the fact that he loves us a few decades later john would write letters that are manifestos of god's love toward us he would write in first john uh, uh chapter four in this was manifested the love of god toward us because that god sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him herein he is love herein is love not that we love god but that he loved us this is how much god loves us so much that he decided to robe himself in flesh come and live a life that was impossible for us take up a cross that had our names on it and become the propitiation of our sins. He was buried in a grave that was meant for us and he rose three days later. Why? Because you are the one whom thou lovest. He desires you. He died for you and he's dying for you to love him back. It's a love unlike any other. It's a love that is so hard to even explain, so hard to understand, so hard to put it into words, to comprehend. John figured something out by watching Jesus. It's not about how much we love God. It's about how much he loves us. 
And that little truth will change the way you think, the way that you talk, and the way that you pray. For too many of us, life is all about how much we can accomplish. Life is about, it's about our plans, it's about our work, it's about our merit, it's about our achievements, and that's gratifying to the ego, but ultimately, you know what it is? It's a dead end. We find ourselves in situations that we can't get out of, in need of favors that we don't deserve. We lose our perspective very quickly when we make life all about us. I hate to break it to you today, but it's never been about us. This is not about our story. It's about his story. And thank God that he allows us to be a part of his work, allows us to be a part of his glory. Amen. I thank God for his great love that it's hard to even fathom here this morning. Mary and Martha were some of Jesus' closest friends, and John, according to scholars, was probably Jesus' closest disciple. And it seems the people nearest Jesus had an overwhelming awareness of his love for them, and I think this morning maybe we should take a hint. The message Mary and Martha sent was a plea. It was a prayer. And notice the basis of their prayer. The one you love. You can find out a lot about what you really believe in when you listen to yourself pray. When you listen to what you say in the heat of the moment. How many times have we prayed, God, I need your help. God, I, I have been faithful. I help people. I'm generous. I read my Bible and I pray. I know scripture and I know how to praise. So, Lord, we pray, help, help me. You know, when we pray that way, in other words, we're saying, Lord, based on what I have done, please do. And we think that moves God. No, what moves God is his love. He is motivated by his love for you and I. He is moved on with compassion. When he looks out and he sees that we have a need, he is motivated by his love for us. As our music comes this morning, Psalms 18 says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Kind of an amazing concept to read scripture that says he delights in me. One of the most famous love poems of all time, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 43 starts out, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Can I tell you this morning, don't count the ways that you love God, but count the ways that he loves you. You know why? Our love 
pales in comparison to his. So when you pray like Mary and Martha, why, don't, why can't we go into prayer with that mindset? God loves me. God is for me. What is the focus of the Bible? Is it man loving God or is it God loving man? Many of us would answer that automatically and we would say it's about man loving God. It's about humans leaving a sinful lifestyle and turning to God. And even if we didn't say it, we believe it. Just look at how we act. But here's the deal. We would be wrong because all 66 books of the Bible, all 40 plus authors writing over the course of 1600 years point to the same thing. God's love for humanity. If you find yourself like me, you find yourself time and time again obsessing over your own inconsistencies and inadequacies over your own love or lack of love for God. But if we spent more time in the Bible, we would discover that it is overwhelmingly about God's love for us. In fact, God, God's love, He created our love. Here's a crazy thought for you. God's love is so extravagant and so inexplicable that he loved us before we were us. He loved you before you ever existed. And what boggles my mind he knew many of us would reject him, would hate him, would curse him, would rebel against him. Yet he chose to love us. God loves us because he is love. Can I tell you today that the reason we are even interested in God is that He is right on our trails. We are His favorites and He delights in us. He is passionately pursuing you. He doesn't just love us like a friend or an aunt or an uncle or even like a dad. His love for us is far more perfect than any earthly love we could ever encounter. I love the words that David writes in Psalms when he says, Surely your goodness and your mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David couldn't get away from God's goodness. He couldn't outrun his mercy. Church, make no mistake about it. God is after you. He is pursuing you. Why? Because you are the one whom thou lovest. You are the apple of his eye. I believe we won't fully comprehend his love until one day when we enter in eternity with him. And I think that when we get to eternity, we will just be undone. We will be overwhelmed and overcome and consumed with the enormity of his great love. Would you stand with me this morning? 
Why don't you picture that the next time you close your eyes, the next time you get on your knees in an altar, the next time you find yourself in your prayer closet. Why don't you picture that the next time you fail at something, the next time you are facing a tough situation. This little truth this morning, it will revolutionize everything. Go ahead and try to describe the height of his love, the length of his love, the width of his love, the depth of his love. You know what? Our metaphors will pale in comparison we have marriages we have children we have adoptions we have friends but nothing compares to God's love for us I've tried over and over for the past 24 hours to to describe or to figure out how I would describe God's love, how I would present it to the church this morning. I sat at my computer last night and this and this morning just staring blankly at the screen, trying to come up with words, trying to come up with the right adjectives, trying to come up with the right phrases. But how do you do it? How do you describe a love that is so so deep, so rich, so amazing. How do you describe a rose to a blind person? How do you describe a beautiful chorus to someone who is deaf? How do you describe the thrill of downhill skiing to one who has never walked? How do you describe the impeccable, infinite love of God to impure, finite humans? One of the most vivid characteristics of God is that He is a God of love. The psalmist was descriptive in recording the love nature of God. He stated that He was full of faithful love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear him. Would you bow your head, close your eyes with me this morning all across this place? Those scriptures, they kind of give us a glimpse of this kind of incredible, incomprehensible love that God has for us. And then in John 15, he writes, no one, no one has greater love than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. If you want a visible definition of love, look at what was accomplished on the cross. Romans 5 says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to understand his love, don't listen to love songs or people who throw the term love around. If you want to get to the depths of what it means to love and be loved, look to the cross of Christ.
you are the one whom thou lovest. Everyone here under the sound of my voice, you are the one whom he loves. He is pursuing you. He is chasing after you. God's position has never been one who has turned his back on his people. Rather, it has been the opposite. We have learned to turn our backs upon him. And so after hearing about the love of God and the, the passionate, the zeal that he has for each and every one of us, you may wonder, well, what should our response be? Do we just simply say, I love you back? Or what should we do? How should we act? Well, I think about Acts chapter 2, whenever they heard the word that was preached. Peter gets up and he preaches to them, Jesus. He preaches to them the cross. And I love their response. They repented. They repented. It may sound funny to hear a, a sermon preached on the love of God and then end it with repentance, but I think that is one thing that we ought to do in the closing moments of this service. The thing that will help, and I mentioned it last Sunday, what, how we can get people to repent is we get them to see him, to see his great love for you and for me. They heard about it. They heard the word preached and they said, Peter, what shall we do? Repent. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Why should we repent? Because we realize how much we pale in comparison to him. He is holy. He is righteous. He is mighty. In the closing moments of this service, why can't we just do that right where we stand? If you want to kneel at your seat, if you want to stay standing, could we just stand before the Lord, close our eyes, lift up our voices and say, Jesus, Lord, I ask you to cleanse me. Lord, cleanse my heart right now, God. Forgive me if there's any sin, God, that is hindering me from walking and an experience in this love, God. If my identity is not rooted in this love, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Come on, would you open up your mouth with me this morning? Would you begin to pray? Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. God, how great is your love toward us. Lord, while we are mistakes, God, while we are sinners, Lord, you still chose a cross. Hallelujah, Jesus.